LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Beyond politics, poverty and war. LegalizeFreedom.com He creates a revolutionary type of microprocessor. In three years, Cyberten will become the largest supplier of military computer systems. All stealth bombers are upgraded with Cyberten computers, becoming fully unmanned. Afterwards, they fly with a perfect operational record. The Skynet funding bill is passed. The system goes online on August 4, 1997. Human decisions are removed from strategic defense. Skynet begins to learn at a geometric rate. It becomes self-aware at 2.14 a.m. Eastern Time, August 29th. In a panic, they try to pull the plug. Skynet fights back. Yes, it launches its missiles against the targets in Russia. Because Skynet knows that the Russian counterattack will eliminate its enemies over here. Let me put it this way, Mr. Raymer. The 9000 series is the most reliable computer ever made. No 9000 computer has ever made a mistake or distorted information. We are all, by any practical definition of the words, foolproof and incapable of error. The first law is as follows. A robot may not harm a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Number two. A robot must obey orders given it by qualified personnel unless those orders violate rule number one. Uh, rule number three, a robot must protect its own existence unless that violates rules one or two. A robot must cheerfully go into self-destruction if it is in order to follow an order or to save a human life. Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative day. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me, and I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Hal, I won't argue with you anymore. Open the doors. Dave, this conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Hal? 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 In talking to the computer, one gets the sense that he is capable of emotional responses. We are for you would be assimilated. We are walk. Lower your shields and surrender your ships. Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Darius Nickbin, 
who joins us to discuss his book, The Universal Subject of Our Time, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Machine. In the dialectic of man versus machine, can machines ever become more than glorified number crunchers? How would we know if a machine was actually beginning to think? If it did, might it eventually develop self-awareness? And if so, might it also develop self-interest? And what if its interests conflicted with ours? In the context of scientific optimism versus postmodern pessimism, we ponder whether artificial intelligence can deliver on its promise of tackling social and economic problems and enhancing our lives, or whether its ultimate threat of a subjugated or even annihilated humanity could one day come to pass. Machines are doing more and more of what used to be the work of the human mind, reducing us to shallower thinking and understanding. In the drive to develop the ever more complex and autonomous technological matrix within which we are increasingly subsumed, is the human race being lost? Hello and welcome, Darius, and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Thanks for having me on your show, Greg. Uh, today, Darius, we're going to be discussing your new book. I believe it's your first. It's entitled The Universal Subject of Our Time, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Machine. Before we dive into that, just tell listeners a little bit about your work in general and your background. My background is in the physical sciences. I studied physics at Imperial College some time ago now. Uh, my original interest was always in uh, philosophy, and that kind of prompted me to go into studying physics in a way, because I think physics has a lot of uh, philosophical implications. Well, after my physics degree, I went into science communication. I went on to work briefly at CERN and the Institute of Physics Publishing in Bristol. And then I just uh, became a freelance science writer and I decided to do research into what the subjects, what the topics that uh, were of interest. And uh, several years ago, it, it, the subject of artificial intelligence, AI, uh, was kind of brought to my attention uh, because I think that in terms of its philosophical implications, I think that it is the topic of the day. And today we can see that the world that we're living in is changing it's having to adapt itself to developments in ai um i think it was very i think it was john brockman recently who said the literary publicist in based in america who said that ai is the story behind all the stories that we're getting in the news so behind everything that's happening we have this emerging ai so that's 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 why it's really become uh the subject of interest presently for me now of course your book does deal uh, in some depth with uh, AI potential uh, of development and implications, but there's a great deal more to your book than that. Um, I don't know how you would kind of sum it up. I mean, is it man versus machine or man becomes machine or machine replaces man, sort of past, present and future? To to summarize my book, I think it is, it is about this kind of dialectical uh, relationship that man and machine uh, have and how this dialectical relationship, this almost antagonistic relationship is fueling a lot of the changes that we're seeing today uh i think what the the moment that ai sparked my interest machine thought sparked my interest was when i was much younger in a discussion with my grandfather about uh about computers becoming so intelligent that they start to replace human beings and that is effectively what we're seeing today uh in in and we've seen it uh, for over a century except today we're seeing it in uh in 
areas of activity where human uh, thought processing is required, we're seeing machines interpolating themselves into those processes and replacing human thought patterns. So uh, I do, the, the book really does begin with this pres uh, the premise of man versus machine, and it looks to the, uh, and it looks at the philosophy of subjectivity and, and then eventually starts to find room for machine subjectivity and the significance that that has. Yes, the whole book really, I mean, obviously we've got the word subject in the book's title, but the, the whole thing uh, really can be said to look at these issues through the lens of subjectivity or subjectivity as the as a sort of constant background. And what we mean by subjectivity is in terms of self-awareness as opposed to, you know, subject or subjective, I should say, as opposed to objective. And one of the big questions posed early on in the book is the question of uh, machine self-awareness and can machines think? Now, of course, there's questions arise of what does thinking actually mean? You mentioned your early interest, um, how that developed in some of these areas. And I grew up at a time throughout the late 70s and in particular and into the 80s where science fiction in particular was projecting all sorts of utopian and dystopian futures related to uh, machine self-awareness and, and AI. And a lot of those predictions and projections now seem rather ridiculous. And some of them seem quite conservative, really. So. That's certainly the case. I mean, science fiction uh, is played... I, I mean, do, I do mention lots of science fiction films and books and stories uh, that have uh, that really do shape our outlook towards the future that's I think that's the the role of science fiction that that it helps frame our, our approach to how we think the future is going to uh, develop um, but the future is now uh, in the book I make a, a case for the fact that the issues that we have aren't something that's uh, that we should kind of project into some doomsday scenario in a hundred a thousand years or something like that what what is happening is happening now the singularity the this talk of uh the ray kurzweil kind of projected as happening in the mid 21st century you know we can't keep uh putting off this discussion and living in this kind of state of uh, anticipation we have to understand what machine subjectivity means today what the self of the machine means today philosophically speaking uh uh, or else, you know, we, we we end up in this kind of the realm that we're in today, which is this kind of post-truth world, this post-reality world where anything can be true. Uh, the media, nobody really kind of trusts the media anymore. Uh, politicians, uh, events around the world, everyone is now becoming closed in this kind of bubble of uh, mediated reality. The human subject is, is mediated by technology. Uh, that's another point that I've, I've, I've raised in, in this book. Well, I mentioned that you address the question about, you know, can machines think uh, at what point might that happen? Becoming self-aware, has it already happened? And we, of course, have a tendency to view everything through uh, our own eyes and that, you know, that humanistic lens. Yeah. So if we're thinking about self-awareness, we think of, well, what, you know, what, what would it be like for a machine to be somehow like us? Uh, and that is the benchmark for yeah. uh, self-awareness. But of course, that's not necessarily the case. And when we're thinking about machines becoming self-aware, that's not the same thing as same thing as alive. So life is something else. Yeah. But this sort of self-awareness, it first all depends very much on where you draw the boundaries and how you define it. But again, that also is very much affected by our own perspective on this. And I think that 
when we're thinking about machines becoming self-aware or engaging in processes that we might define uh, or understand as thought, we're in danger of uh, doing what we've done with, with like life. For example, if we were to at some point be able to travel beyond our own planet in a meaningful way or even the solar system and encounter other forms, would yeah. we, would we perhaps be, be forced to rethink the definition of what life is, you know, where that begins and ends? Yeah. This is, this is the whole, the whole danger of uh, anthropocentrism, projecting human qualities onto, onto the other. So the, the approach that people kind of naturally or almost instinctively have towards machine intelligence is to say, uh, at what point would the machine be thinking the same way that I am? But the question really is, what is human thought itself? What is it that makes us thinking subjects? So, uh, if we, if we are to kind of sit back and wait for the moment at, at some point where there's like a click of a button or an algorithm that's developed or some sort of software that suddenly, you know, you, some software called consciousness that you upload into a machine and the machine suddenly is suddenly aware. I don't think it's happening like that. I think what is really happening is that what we have is uh, a mediated human subjectivity that is mediated uh, through technology and that in a way the more humans are becoming less self-aware as they become more and more entangled in this technology so uh, the question of the question isn't necessarily of the there is a question of can a machine think but then there is also a question of uh, what it, what is it for a human being to think a lot of our thought process today are being, are being channeled through technology through these semiconductor systems through these computers Outside of being engaged with this technology, are we really thinking? What value has our mental processing got? What value does this kind of biological uh, metabolism that occurs in our brain? You know, what what was it? Is it just electrical stimulation? Does is that thought processing? Uh, to to an extent, we are biological uh, machines. At what point do we have consciousness? At what point are we subjects? So the question of the question isn't I think to uh, I think it's uh, the question isn't whether necessarily a machine can think, but is whether men think. And this is these these questions have to be asked simultaneously, rather than waiting for that moment where uh, machine consciousness suddenly arrives on the scene. What's happening is happening today. You, you mentioned postmodernism earlier in, in one of your comments, and there's actually quite a lot of philosophy, if we can put it that way, that uh, creeps into your book. And if we talk for a moment about the human dimension of all this, a lot of the developments that we're talking about go back to the industrial revolution, essentially, you know, the mechanization of so many dimensions of society. But uh, if we can talk about, in terms of the content of your book, if we can talk somewhat about what are known as the science wars and how that's fed into where we are now, that's to say scientific optimism versus postmodern pessimism, I think that'll be instructive for people because there's there's a lot more going on here than just nuts and bolts development of technology and and how yeah. that's how we're interacting with that. There's all all those all sort of emotions and yeah. agendas and all those other prickly little human traits uh, come into this. So the the book itself, the the approach that I've taken is to look at the philosophy of the subject. Now, uh, the subject that we're kind of dealing with um, arises from the kind of the Enlightenment onwards, where you have this, uh, the subject of science, the Cartesian, the Newtonian subject, this first person looking out onto this kind of mechanistic world, making 
direct observations, this very clear subject-object dichotomy, giving an account of the scientific universe. Uh, now, uh, as time progressed, uh, as you move from the Enlightenment onwards, and you eventually you get to the point uh, with uh, postmodernists in the 20th century, this uh, subject of scientific thought, this subjectivity is really criticised. The, the postmodernists from Althusser to Foucault uh, to Baudrillard and others, they pick apart the subject. They say that there is no grand narrative of subjectivity. Uh, for example, Foucault would say that the subject, the subject of the Enlightenment that we kind of that led so much scientific progress, uh, the subject of the in, Enlightenment is, is subordinated by power relations that uh, Althusser and others would say state ideology. So the grand narrative of subjectivity was kind of picked apart. And not just that, but postmodernism took on objectivity, the grand narrative is unveiling scientific truths, uh, scientific progress. Uh, and science really did fall back, fight back with the, during the, the so-called uh, science wars because science scientists cling on to this, uh, to this narrative that there is an objective real universe and there is a scientific subject. Look, still kind of as they're claiming to be heirs of the Enlightenment, scientists claim that uh, you know the, the objective real universe is out there and science is the only kind of a human activity that can reveal all these grand truths about it. Now, postmodernists would say, no, there's, the, there is no real objective world out there. Science is like any other human endeavor. It's humanly, it's humanly constructed. It's a social construct. Now, there was a face-off in the 90s between uh, the postmodernists, possibly led by uh, Jacques Derrida, and scientists, kind of philosophically-minded scientists like Alain Socal. And this, this kind of intellectual conflict between science and postmodernism was a, uh, a kind of, uh, a kind of loss for both sides. There was no intellectual, uh, terrain that was generated that, that kind of persisted to this day because it was a, a mutually assured destruction. So in terms of the philosophy of su uh, subjectivity that I begin to explore in this book, what we have, what we have in the first part of the book is the, the social sciences and postmodernism and science trying to uh, develop a theory uh, of the subject. And that doesn't really happen. It's only in the second part of the book, uh, the, the idea of machine subjectivity and AI is introduced. If this sounds somewhat abstract, it has to be said that how we approach this, you know, whether it's from a science, an objective, we, or we can ask, does scientific object, objectivity really exist? But if we approach current developments in technology and computing and the development of AI with an objective scientific point of view, or if we come at it from a postmodern point of view, you know, very much subjective and, you know, things being very fluid, that is going to affect, where, you know, where all of these developments go from this point into the future. The approach that we have uh, to machine subjectivity is, uh, or just subjectivity in, in general, can the way I see things kind of progressing now, now is uh, where, where, do we, uh, where do we posit the self? Uh, do we have uh, a theory of a, a kind of transcendental self that exists uh, outside of the physical realm? Or do we, ha do we have a theory of the self that exists within the material uh, universe? So the, 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 approach is to the approach to kind of... I mean, what we're attempting to do here is to uh, understand how these developments in AI affect us all. 
So a theory of the subject is still required. A theory of subjectivity is still required. Now, uh, postmodernists would still challenge any kind of grand narrative of subjectivity. But we, we really need to have uh, a discussion or open a discussion about subjectivity because uh, of these, the effect that the, the, these developments in AI are having on society. Well, I've got problems with postmodernism, postmodern thinking. Nothing is, nothing is real. Nothing is true. I, I absolutely do. I also have issues with that scientific, cold scientific objectivity concept, you know, as to whether that's, it's really possible to look at anything like that. I suppose the big question is, which boils down for me personally, it's like, do any of these developments actually matter in a way? Because, if you've got uh, what would loosely fall in with the postmodern point of view of that there is a transcendent reality, then all of these develops, developments are kind of just happening within, almost like within a, a microcosm of reality or a bubble. Whereas if you're taking the scientific objective view, then these developments, they absolutely matter because what's happening to us in relation to our technology is all there is or it is what there is, if you see what I mean. It's not abstract. And uh, if you look at the former position, then the idea is that you know that transcendental reality sort of never goes away, as it were. That we're kind of like actors on a stage. Yeah. So the the, the approach I've, I've taken is that uh, at the end of part one, uh, we have uh, this uh, a new standoff that I think is occurring today between uh, again a kind of new newly reformed postmodernism. Where there is this idea of the transcendental, uh, this realm where anything is possible, this realm beyond human experience, this realm that's beyond the physical world, beyond the object objectifiable world, and again, you still have uh, science on the other hand that uh, does believe in this kind of physically real realm. Now, uh, any kind of dis discussion in in the future between these two sides. And there are two sides to this debate, and uh, any any discussion in the future has to approach and understand what machine subjectivity really means. That is that is that is the uh, that is the issue of that is the concern and the issue of the day. Um, so we're we're moving at the at the moment, even in, in discussion now, we're moving into uh, unknown territory. Uh, this isn't we. It's not. I, I don't believe that you know for the future of uh, for the future of mankind, for the future of intellectual thinking, that we should kind of go over the the, the old terrain over and over again. Uh, so, I, I I think there should be a renewed debate between uh, the scientists on the one hand and the postmodernists. Uh, this time, not so much over the over objectivity that resulted in the science wars of the 1990s, but this time over subjectivity. And I think the, the main question, as, as I, as I said, is about AI and about machine intelligence. That's, that's the, that's the new intellectual terrain that needs to be, uh, explored. I believe that both sides actually have got something to offer. And I, yeah. I do agree with you that a, a new synthesis in yeah. thinking can, can lead us forward. And I just think that the old lines along which these battle lines along which these debates were drawn are outmoded and it can be frustrating to see yeah. d debates and discussion framed in the same old terms, as you say. 
Um, I spoke earlier about, uh, you know, growing up with, uh, you know, sci-fi dystopias and, uh, various predictions about the future and what was going to happen and how terrible it was going to be, or alternatively, how wonderful it was going to be. Uh, early on in the book, you talk about, uh, some of the, which many listeners will be familiar with, some of the chess computers uh, and some of the chess games that have been staged in public. And these are very, uh, totemic examples of computers outwitting humans, uh, in games of their own devising. That being said, uh, when it, when we move beyond that, it seems that some of the, I can't remember the name of it, but there was a sort of kind of robot torso head doing the rounds on, on chat shows. Uh, you know, the idea of you know, an early version of AI, supposedly, uh, these things are extremely easy to bamboozle. And you do, of course, mention the question or the issue, I should say, of responses. It, you know, it, all the information that's gone into these machines has been put there by us. The question is, can the robot, can the AI take that and create anything new out of it? Or is it just recombining that information? And in that light, even the best of these new machines appear to be simply number crunching and doing information storage and retrieval, uh, albeit much faster and more accurately than than any of us can do it. And And that's why these machines are useful to us. There's no evidence so far, and I put so far in quotes, air quotes, that Machines can become emotional or creative. And these are two of the traits you mentioned in the book as that might be uniquely human. And I got to thinking again in air quotes, why would they feel anything? What, why would, why would that development ever occur? You speak about HAL in, uh, onboard computer in 2001, a space odyssey feeling threatened. Why would that, why would that ever develop? We're still seeing what I, believed to be just very advanced number crunching and information storage and retrieval and nothing so far that suggests anything beyond that. Can self-preservation be programmed perhaps? Maybe that's something that can happen in future. We think of Asimov's three laws of robotics, you know, that a, a robot must preserve itself. So far there's nothing like that whatsoever. I'm not aware of any system that has has been able to do anything in any way about anyone pulling a plug out of a wall. The, the kind of the, the, the robots of today are some of them, um, I mentioned in the book that they can, they, they don't, they haven't reached a kind of stage of development where we can start looking at them going, you know, they're, they, they're almost human. The, the, they're very, in, in a way, this is the very beginning of, of a revolution, uh, akin to the industrial revolution. So we're, we're only uh, a few decades into this, uh, we're only uh, um, seeing the very start of changes that will be occurring in the future. What the 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 main point that I think uh, concerns me um, with with robots, with computers, with machines is uh, that we we don't quite understand. We we haven't really uh, grasped the, the 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 philosophical implications and. We can be easily distracted by these kind of very uh, uh, kind of underdeveloped robots that you see on on TV, and they 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 don't they still seem very far off from being uh, being close to humans in terms of uh, emotional creative emotional intelligence creativity. The the point I really want to kind of get at is that uh, the what, what is uh, the the, the self of the machine. What what uh, what makes the machine subject any more different 
from the human subject. We are, as, as human beings, we are technologically mediated. We're, we're only subjects insofar as we can harness the power of technology. Whereas this, the, the machine self and has a kind of, almost a kind of independence. Now, we've embarked on this kind of line of progress in robotics, in science and technology, without understanding the, the foundations, the philosophical foundations that we're kind of building up on. And I think this is a very dangerous thing. And just to kind of, uh, and again, we, we see these chess computers and we see these very basic uh, robots and we, we aren't, and we compare them with the science fiction. You see, well, that's, that's something for the far distant future. But we are laying the foundations for the future now. And th that's why I, I feel in the book that uh, why the, these philosophical questions need to be really addressed. We do have a history, though, don't we, of developing new technology or stumbling upon it and rushing headlong into its use and then realising later what the downside is. Oh, there's always going to be some people who have objections to it up front because, you know, they worry about what it means. You know, they think it's like the Luddite movement, you know, uh, smashing machines that were uh, during the Industrial Revolution. But it seems that we're kind of we're doing this again, which is just like wholeheartedly embracing something without thinking about it whatsoever. That's that's the kind of point that I'm, I'm trying to raise in this book. And this, this is the thing. We really need to start taking a distance from what's happening. A lot of the symptoms that I, I see occurring as a result of the development of artificial intelligence is the kind of post-truth, post-real world that we're living in today. Uh, this kind of highly mediatized environment where you can't tell what's truth, what's true from what's false, what's fact from uh, fiction. Now, the reason for that, in my view, is because uh, we, we, we don't understand human subjectivity as well as we should. We don't uh, understand what it really is uh, to be a human self. Technology plays such a massive role because we are tool, a tool-making species. We have been from uh, our, the beginnings of our evolution. Uh, what makes humans distinct from animals is their self-awareness, but particularly uh, tool-making and language. So rushing headlong into this kind of technological realm, uh, becoming completely saturated in this smart technology, and then suddenly turning around and saying, oh, we live in a kind of post-truth, post-truth. Well, there's a reason why uh, uh, we, we've, we've kind of emerged in this world. And when, when we talk about the, the robots, or the I, I call them in this book, mechans from the word uh, mechanoid, the, the, the mechans of the future, uh, we're, we're seeing the very beginnings of this. The, the, the smartphone is just the very beginning of this emergent, uh, emergent awareness. So uh, these are these are early days, but the the foundation is already being laid, uh, and th this is why I think there has to be uh, a really uh, vigorous discussion uh, out there uh, about what where we're heading. Do you think that a lot of what we're seeing, you know, that you mentioned uh, the the post truth world, is so chaotic? Uh, certainly a lot of interesting things happening, not all of them bad, but that it's so chaotic and unpredictable because it's been driven by our unconsciousness, which is in itself then all sort of feeding back into our consciousness, then in some sort of like feedback loop, you know, then back into the technological systems. We're, we are trapped in technology. Uh, Post-truth and this kind of post-real world, uh, these are symptoms of this kind of over-reliance in technology and this lack of recognition of 
that we as, as human beings we're technologically uh, mediated. Now, uh, as, as I said, uh, we're, we're technologically mediated, and the reason uh, why we haven't we're kind of stuck in this loop is because we haven't recognised what machine subjectivity is for itself. That's why in uh, in this book I, I developed this new theory of uh, the of subjectivity that relies on this kind of dialectical relationship between man and machine, puts man and machine on an equal footing. Now, this is very difficult for a lot of people to accept because, again, it just seems to us that these are just tools that we're using. But there is a kind of drawback to or, or, or to the kind of to the how how technology's made life so easy because, in a way, we've become now subservient to a mechanical imperative. No, there are certainly agendas within the AI advocacy movement, if I can put it that way. Uh, people who want to see certain changes want to bring them about. But if a lot of this is driven by our unconscious relationship with technology, how would any of us know, any of us who were interested or intelligent observers, how would we know if anything was coming back from our technological systems that wasn't of us, if you see what I mean? Um, how would we tell if the tail was wagging the dog or even beginning to? You'd kind of describe it as being kind of young, the part of our human kind of uh, unconscious that is kind of causing all this. So consciously we're, uh, we're using technology and it's to our advantage, but somehow unconsciously we're, we're allowing the, the machine or this mechanical imperative to take over our lives. Uh, rather than say that it's complete human agency here, I, I'd like, to, I, I'm introducing the, the notion of, uh, uh, the machine self. Now this, this concept is very, it's it's very difficult to uh, accept for most people in their everyday lives that there's a there's a kind of uh, a self or an other outside of the human self that really is an other uh, that somehow this inert technology is part of some sort of uh, a, a non-human uh, mechanical as I put. It, imperative it's difficult to imagine something outside of the human this is uh, what what is required is almost a, a copernican shift of thinking where the human subject is as a, as a mediated technological subject is decentered and uh, what you have is the centrality of machine subjectivity yeah that is going to be an enormous leap for a lot of people because they'll still feel that somehow a machine could only have selfhood in in that it's it's still part of us if you see what i mean it's like a an offshoot of us you know, talk about us making tools that our smartphone even if it's not physically part of our body is still some kind of extension of it to have something that's completely other there's going to be a lot of people who just go consider that and just go no sorry what do you mean <laughs> exactly i mean that's it's just something that i even in in from philosophical perspective uh, philosophy has always, in a sense, been human-centric. Uh, uh, issues that we have, you know, we can only see them from a perspective of uh, of the human. So to introduce uh, another self or another kind of subjective that is outside of the human, this isn't something that's really been uh, considered in in philosophy. But now is the time. Now is the age. You know, we're go we're moving from we're we're ent entering a, an age called the Anthropocene. Uh, uh, there's a phrase, another phrase that's been used to kind of capture the time we, we're living in called uh, 
we're moving from being homo sapiens to homo uh, technicus, technological human. So we're, we are going through an age of transition and we are going to have to make very kind of difficult uh, leaps of the imagination, uh, even kind of leaps of faith possibly, uh, in order to kind of understand the changes that we are kind of the world is going through. And it's not it's not good enough, quite frankly, to accept as as a, as a kind of as thinkers as intellectuals this post truth environment where we inhabit these uh, detached technological bubbles. And yes, we are human beings are technological. We're tool a tool making species. We're a technological species, but our very selfhood is kind of bound by technology. Without technology, we we are we aren't human. If, if you like, without tool making, we aren't human. So, uh, what's left at the end, end of all that is a kind of uh, a very kind of challenging uh, philosophical principle, and that and that is something that we really need to start getting our heads around. What's what's happening? Rather than living in these kind of technologically mediated bubbles and accepting uh, post reality, because at the end of the day, you know th that that means we're entering almost a realm. Of a book I describe as technological psychosis or or a detachment from reality. Uh, somebody might think, well, we're considering the issue of machine selfhood because we feel that we have subjective selves, so we're kind of projecting that onto machines because we can imagine some kind of like human-like qualities developing in computers for obvious reasons because we you know we've been able to imagine these qualities. Uh, before we ever developed computers as we know them, you know, we think back to some of the early sci-fi books. We, we, you know, we both referenced in writing E.M. Forster's yeah. short story, "The Machine Stops." Yeah. So we've been able to imagine these things before we could even think that they could really become reality. So that being the case, what is it about, in your opinion, about what's happening technologically um, in terms of AI that means that we have to consider a machine self? The point that's being raised. Uh, that you've raised, I think, is a very significant point in terms of subjectivity. Uh, is is the notion of machine selfhood or machine subjectivity uh, simply another kind of anthropocentric uh, projection? I don't think it is. When when in, in kind of in examining subjectivity, we have to kind of ask the question of where we uh, locate the subject. Now, intuitively, we locate intuitively we can't locate the subject in in our human selves, but uh, when you look at what, what it is to be human, it's not so much that uh, what makes us distinct from the normal world in terms of our evolution is our uh, tool making, as, as I mentioned before. So, and at the same time, when we sense the world around us, we do it through sim symbolic imagery. Now, as, as a tool making, as a technological species, there's nothing in, in that kind of... Uh, technologically mediated relationship where we can locate the subject itself. So when, when, you, when we think about selfhood in general, there's nothing necessarily in the human condition where we can uh, locate the origin of the subject itself. Whereas, once, whereas with the machine, once it's kind of been assembled, this kind of uh, this mechanism, uh, the subject of, its, of the machine is something uh, that we can, in a way, project out there in the world, that, that is in the world, the subject of the machine. Concept, we're, we're talking conceptually at the moment. 
So conceptually speaking, uh, if we talk about subjectivity in general rather than human or machine subjectivity, there's nothing really to, for us to kind of say, well, it, it, begin, it all begins in us. It's something that we can project outwardly. That's why I think subjectivity is uh, the, to the topic that we should be considering philosophically. Well, I can turn just to the, the question of consciousness. I mean, that's still an enormous riddle for us, uh, trying to discern its nature, potential origins. I mean, we don't know almost nothing about it, though uh, many people, uh, especially lay people, believe that problem more or less to have been solved. That is to say, it's an epiphenomenon of the brain. It's some, or it's something that arises once uh, organisms reach a certain degree of complexity. What's your take on this question of consciousness in relation to the technological developments we've been discussing and AI? Because for many people, and I've done quite a few interviews, more or less in this area, sort of drawing a line and saying that there's a problem with the yeah. issue of consciousness in terms of like uh, the future of AI and reasons why a lot of the developments that AI proponents uh, hope and believe will take place will not take place because they're misunderstanding the nature of consciousness, which we as a species don't really understand anyway. Um, I think there are parallels between subjectivity and consciousness. Uh, I think the, the problem with consciousness is that it's very difficult to define, but once you have a kind of definition of consciousness, then I don't think it's it's too far away from subjectivity. So if uh, uh, subjectivity concerns the senses, how we connect with the outside world, uh, consciousness is much more kind of uh, an awareness. But I think uh, in terms of uh, these proponents of AI and uh, where how they how they describe how uh, the di direction that uh, machines are taking, and they the the debate hasn't really been opened and i think consciousness can be a bit of a diversion really it can be a bit because it's for me because it lacks this kind of clear philosophical uh definition uh whereas we can discuss uh subjectivity and objectivity in terms of the subject object dichotomy that's kind of been one it's one of the oldest discussions in, in philosophy it's much more difficult to uh pin down what people mean by consciousness but I think it's, it's part, it's all part of kind of healthy debate. Um, AI, these, these, you mentioned these proponents of, uh, AI, these kind of, uh, tech gurus of our time who talk about AI and they talk about the singularity and, uh, uh, they talk about, uh, what, where, where it's all heading. Consciousness is a bit of a diversion as a, as not just because, uh, not just for the reason I just mentioned that, uh, it's very loosely de de defined, but it's become like the kind of currency for these AI gurus to kind of distract us from the from the kind of groundwork, foundational, philosophical question of subjectivity. Well, one of the things that seems very important to some of the AI proponents is, and it's the question of consciousness uh, in terms of um, not just machine development or AI development, but transhumanism. Yeah. Uh, the idea being that our consciousness, yours and mine, is something beyond the body, something that doesn't, well, some people say it, it does outlive the body, some people say it doesn't or it cannot, but with some AI proponents, the idea is that your essential self in some way, your consciousness, could outlive your body in this world by being melded with some form of 
artificial, as I say, not natural technology. I know you point out in the book that technology is natural in the sense that it's, you know, constructed from components that have occurred naturally on the earth or that we've synthesized, synthesized yeah. with components that occur naturally on the earth. But there's still that consideration. So, so that's important, uh, in these terms. And of course, there's two main, two major threads here, which are overlap, but they're not identical. And that, that's just the development of machine intelligence and AI and then any, interaction that we might have with that and then beyond interaction actually melding with if you see what i mean because for a lot of ai people um it's not just about artificial intelligence for its own sake but it's very much about augmenting human intelligence and physicality and consciousness moving beyond the human as we understand it the the transhumanist movement and the kind of post post-humanism and transhumanism uh i think these are these are all very kind of interesting kind of scenarios, but they, they really divert our attention from what is much more significant. I think the most significant developments is that this sort of uh, intelligent machinery is replacing human labor. Uh, and this, is, uh, this, is, this has much more direct and present-day social consequences than the notion of, I don't know, Elon Musk uploading himself uh, into a computer or something very abstract and... I think a lot of these uh, AI proponents are, are, are talking quite a lot of uh, speculative and, uh, and fashionable nonsense, really. I'm not a big fan of what they're saying in terms of... Uh, I mean, they're, they're augmenting human intelligence. What we really need to do is to kind of uh, bring the discussion back to... What's happening in the here and now? They're, they're looking for more investment. They're looking to expand their companies. What I think that I'm trying to do, and a lot of other people who are thinking about this subject right now, uh, is to see how this technology is affecting our world today. We don't need to be drawn even further away from reality with these transhumanists, these post-humanist thinking. If, if you are to augment a human being and what would that entail? Having microchips planted in, in the brain? I mean, there, there are some examples of this happening. But what, what is happening for the majority of the population is this basic de development of smart technology. You know, we don't have to go to cyborgs with uh, biochip implants in, in their neuro neuronal mechanisms in their brain uh, to see cyborgs who are basically walking around with their smartphones. That was, I think it was Donna Haraway who said that people... Uh, the kind of whole smartphone phenomenon is an example, kind of an example of the cyborg, the half human, half machine, uh, hybrid. So we don't really need to go, go to posthumanism. I think there's a lot of, uh, uh, posthumanism, transhumanism, philosophically speaking, uh, in terms of like the, the transcendental stuff. So again, this is, this, these are all offshoots of the kind of postmodern way of thinking where anything can be true, anything can happen. I must admit, when I was reading your book, you know, you have to say you cover a lot of ground in quite a short space of time. And I moved from thinking uh, or moved from feeling that you were pro certain technological developments and then very much cautious about others. So perhaps it would be good to ask you, what do you really feel in terms of technological development are the threats and promises? Because, you know, there's definitely optimism and pessimism, if I can put yeah. it like that, in your book. So. Just, I'd like really like to know what you feel the core threats and promises are because you know there are both absolutely in in the things that are happening around us. 
I think te technology is a kind of uh, is like a double-sided coin. There's po there's benefits and there drawbacks. Uh, the, the threats to me uh, is how is how technology. The threat to me is how technology is being used. Technology is when it's being used to create great distance uh, separation between people, break down uh, co cohesive social units. That to me is the danger, and that's that goes for basically all technology. Anything that because Technology does create this uh, uh, gap or separation between ourselves, each other, the world. Um, so I think the way that technology is being used today, this kind of the smart technology, is it's gone too far. I think there's too much of it. Uh, so I do think that it's a hazard, and I, th I think it's created a very dangerous world. It's it's created a world, uh, as, as I mentioned, a post-truth, and it's created a world where certain very kind of uh, uh, extreme views suddenly become part of the mainstream because people are looking for very kind of uh, people looking to reattach themselves to reality and when a lot of kind of uh, populists uh, uh, invective seems to kind of serve that purpose so I think the, the currently the way the technology is being used I'm not I'm not opposed to technology in general we can't live without it but the way that it's being used, the way our social sphere is becoming saturated, that is why I'm very opposed to it, quite, at times quite emotively so. And what's the, what's the promise, if you see what I mean? What, what does a good future, if we get, get to grips with some of these issues, then what, what does a good future look like in, in terms of technological development? Well, the, uh, as I, I am an optimist, despite like, my, my diagnosis of the, the present day, I'm an optimist for the future because a, a good future is where uh, we really kind of uh, harness the mechanical uh, potential of this uh, technology to enable us to uh, uh, live not just more comfortable lives, but uh, I mentioned in the book, but even kind of uh, one, one advantage of uh, the machine is that it can uh, inhabit very in inhospitable environments. So for space exploration, I'm very optimistic about in the future. I think that machinery, uh, robotics can serve a very good purpose. No, technology on the whole, I'm, 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 I'm optimistic about technology if our approach to it is changed, if we have a, a much uh, better understanding of, about how it's being used. Can we say then that you're, it's not, human beings certainly seem to have some kind of death drive. I don't mean all the time and across the board, but it's definitely part of us. You know, we, we seem to be our own worst enemy sometimes. But can we say then that you don't feel that there's an existential threat as things stand from developments in technology and AI to humankind, that we are still our own worst enemies? Uh, I, I do think there... Uh, I wouldn't say there's necessarily um, existential threat in terms of extinction if, if we are to kind of... Uh, Reevaluate our approach to technology uh, in terms of this kind of uh, there is a, a kind of uh, death drive in becoming technologically saturated in allowing ourselves to become technologically saturated and completely detached from the real world. Um, what the, the the real danger, the danger that is occurring today, is that we are continuing along this path. Without having, uh, without a kind of a proper, uh, without thought, there's not enough thought uh, occurring, not enough human thinking occurring about where we are heading, because 
as I kind of describe in this book, if we, if if we set out on this path of I don't know transhumanism, post augmenting human beings, without understanding uh, what that really means, then we do become we literally become detached from the real world, and reality has a has a kind of habit of intruding when we least expect it. So it's all very well kind of uh, the media uh, talking about uh, post reality or post truth, but this is uh, this is a symptom of the kind of technological saturation that uh, we're living through. So there is a danger there. There's a, there's a real danger there. To to go back again to the dystopian sci-fi that I grew up with, and you know, which even a lot of those stories start out with the the idea that machines you know, we designed to make life less burdensome. To use a phrase from your book, right back from simple hand tools through to the technology that you know makes many of our lives uh, in industrialized nations so comfortable today the future that was projected uh you know of the leisure lifestyle and uh three day weeks and all the rest of it seems to have turned instead into mass unemployment I and mean, also those people who are still working many of them working harder than ever so we have less and less jobs for people uh, yeah, as mach- you know mechanization takes those away but simultaneously more and more people on the planet and it does seem that you know there's no autonomous machine uh, intelligence or action here making this happen as they say we're doing it to ourselves um there's it doesn't kind of appear to be some sort of autonomous machine causing uh, all this to happen uh but again appearances uh can be deceptive if you if you include in this kind of calculation uh, uh, machine subjectivity, uh, and one of the kind of uh, very interesting short stories that I read was the one mentioned earlier by Ian Forster, "The Machine Stops." How uh, how there could be like this grand amalgamation of all the technology in the world, all the silicon-based electronics, all the communications technology being a part of this great overarching machine. Now, uh, I think that. Uh, and everybody following the mechanical imperative. So, uh, as we've entered this kind of, as a, this realm of, uh, technological psychosis, this detachment from reality, this post-truth realm, in the meantime, we're getting all our instructions, all the decision making from the kind of high-flying finance to the, to the, to the grassroots, all the decision making is following this technological imperative. It's, it's, it's all about te- uh, technological efficiency. It's all any problem that arises has a technological solution. So we are already uh, part technology, and technology does have a, an autonomous development. Uh, progress is measured by technological progress. Uh, I, I I would really, uh, if they haven't already, uh, I'd recommend your listeners read this short story by Ian Forster, "The Machine Stops," where you do have a very a brief story about how this incredibly kind of dystopian future involves the development of this overarching machine where progress, everyone can see progress and superstition has been put aside and it's all because of what, what is described as the machine. And that is, a, that is a kind of world that we're living in today. We're living in a, in, a, in a world where humans are living in these kind of bubbles. Humans have been reduced to these kind of data points where we are just kind of consumers 
serving the interests of this uh, rapidly developing, rapidly advancing machinery. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the machine stops is a great um, example of thought becoming reality, as it were. And you do have to wonder about how often we, you know, imagine these things and just the very imagining then someone else picks up on it or whether the imagining is in itself the beginning, you know, like oh, something becoming reality, you know, every, everything, real thing begins with a thought as it were. Um, but it's such a great model for what's happening today. You mentioned a moment ago uh, that reality has a way of interjecting or, you know, rearing its head when we least expect it. And there was a great example of when the virtual and the real collide with the 2008 financial crisis, because a lot of what's happening, um, however chaotic, somehow feels a bit inevitable, quite inevitable, and, and uh, if not smooth, it has a certain flow to it. A certain we can take your hands off the steering wheel, as it were. And something like the 2008 financial crisis was very jarring. That showed us some of the potential problems that lie ahead of us. You know, if we don't consider these issues properly, and and act consciously in in their development, and that's when. The, the physical world that we, uh, in this case of money, locks horns or smashes headlong into the the, the virtual world. The difference between um, a billion dollars and a million dollars on a screen is, is a keystroke. And, it, 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 you know, there's nothing physical moves or changes or happens. So the, the 2008 financial crisis I mentioned in the book is very instructive because uh, at that stage they... Uh, the government's literally uh, injected trillions of dollars and pounds uh, into the financial system, and this was this was money that was kind of input into the system uh, con- digitally. It, it had no relation to any anything real and tangible in the physical world, and this, in a way, has has postponed uh, postponed the crisis for another time. Uh, the next time there is a crisis, and there's sure to be one. Uh, again, we'll have this kind of uh, another clash between the real and the virtual. Uh, at the time of the, around the time of the 2008 financial crisis, there was a lot of uh, kind of immense possible emancipatory movements, such as the Occupy movement, the whole Arab Spring movement. There, there, there were a lot of social movements that suddenly awakened themselves. So the next time there is a crisis. There could be a new kind of social awakening. It could be the moment where people start to awaken from this slumber, where they realise that the the machine uh, has stopped. You know, there there is going to be a, a moment where the machine stops, and that's the moment where people kind of awaken to what's happening. And the the second book that I'm planning to write actually kind of picks up where the universal subject left off, and it's called the Red Pill, and it's about how we inhabit this kind of a matrix of the machine and it is does take uh, kind of uh, inspiration from the matrix uh and it talks about and it's, it'll be talking about uh how the machine has become this kind of overarching organism almost people trust seem to be putting investing their trust into it more than e- each other and technological saturation uh has led to the kind of uh problems that we're facing in the present day Okay, Darius. Well, as we begin to bring things to a close for today, um, I'll just move to a few final thoughts. Um, you talk about a reality check being required 
I wonder what your thoughts are. This is not something that you really address in the book. Question of a, perhaps a resource reality check. That is to say, natural resources available to us on the earth, some renewable, some non-renewable, out of which all our technology is constructed. A lot of technological developments, uh, if followed through logically, are kind of need to be predicated on almost infinite resources in a way, uh, because we keep moving, things get bigger, more complex. Uh, all aspects of human society, everything from the food needed to feed the population through to um, rare earth metals needed for all sorts of very complex machines and technologies. We've already been running into um, hard limits and all sorts of resources. So I just wonder what your thoughts are on this issue, because, you know, utopian predictions by certain futurists, I feel, are going to be brought up rudely and rather short when they find out, oh, actually, we haven't got any more of this, or this particular resource has now become so expensive that it's prohibitively uh, preventing us moving forward with the development of this technology. Or, you know, we're ha- we have too many people now who cannot access this technology due to the expense of it. The natural resource reality check is something that I think we, we, we all need to be thinking about. And uh, a lot of these... Uh, Kind of AI proponents and these technology gurus, they they do envision futures that are, uh, and futurists envision futures where problems like this aren't really addressed. Uh, you know, we energy crises uh, could occur again. There could be another energy crisis like the like in the 1970s. For myself, for my book, I do I do I am an optimist. I am a, I am an optimist. So I I do see. Uh, us kind of overcoming any kind of challenges that might come our way, as long as we aren't, we kind of invest ourselves in uh, in having renewed faith in the human, uh, rather than in uh, in this kind of distancing technology. So if if we do kind of start to start to wake up to the reality, start to take our destiny back into our own hands, then uh, I don't see why. Uh, difficulties that should might arise from uh, problems with natural resources can, can't be overcome. Towards the end of your book, you raise some fascinating questions about other dimensions of human life, you know, the, the non-material questions about the soul and spirituality. And you talk about the role of religion in society. Religious stories are basically myths from a bygone age, but they help people interpret the world and, and to live in the past. And many people would say we need new myths for the present and for the future, and a lot of those will involve technology. It's interesting you talk about, uh, for example, the the, the zeal of uh, the religious zeal of AI advocates and f- some futurists, and how Apple product launches, you know, look like um, <laughs> re- you know religious ceremonies. Yeah. And uh, you also consider uh, would it be perhaps new forms of spirituality that might emerge um, as we move forward. Uh, you know, taking a, a positive view of the future, because it's certainly a dimension of, of life that seems that we can't really do without. We kind of try and pretend that, that, uh, that we can. Everything can be purely materialist in terms of metaphysics and also in terms of our daily lives. You know, just like, you know, that work and shopping and status and everything else is enough to satisfy us. It's not. Clearly, we, we, we crave something beyond that. But also whether developments in technology might somehow open up for us new revelations about about our purpose, perhaps, and we start to get into 
again, you know, deep questions, uh, uh, you know, about meaning in life. And, uh, I think the centerpiece of universal advancement is a phrase from your book that you consider in terms of you know, technology being part of evolution. As you mentioned, I do talk about uh, technology supplanting religion and new forms of spirituality uh, emerging. Uh, once once we start to address, kind of think about the, the issues uh, arising as a result of this whole kind of AI revolution, all, all, all forms of new thinking could emerge. So rather than clinging on to the old kind of uh, dogmas of the kind of 20th century, the, the kind of very out, out, outmoded ways of thinking about religion, uh, there could be a very new and exciting realms of human thought that could open up. Once we've kind of emancipated our thought, uh, we, we uh, turn our attention away from this technology. We, you know, we take our eyes away from the smartphone. We suddenly wake up and realize that there's a real world out there. Then uh, all sorts of uh, new, uh, as you might put it, uh, uh, revelations could occur. Uh, now this is the kind of uh, the all we could start talking about a, a universal advancement, as as you mentioned. Uh, and this is the idea you have with the universal subjects itself. And this is something that I describe in the book: is that uh, this dialectic between man and machine once recognized once recognized the human and the mecha dialectic once it's been uh, appreciated and we we suddenly detach ourselves from this over reliance on technology uh, human thinking could reawaken we could have uh, a new age of the enlightenment even uh, a completion of the kind of entire uh, a renewed uh, enlightenment age there's so much kind of potential out there for human thought once we kind of take our attention away from uh, this, uh, from the smartphone, from these devices that are channeling our uh, metabolic thinking activity into this kind of sil silicon realm. There, so much of human attention is now being diverted, is now being uh, distracted into these kind of, into the, the internet, into these websites that really take our attention away from what's happening in the real world, that human thoughts uh, isn't taking on uh, the isn't realizing its full potential. So yeah, I, I, I do kind of see myself in a way as being a bit of a new ageist in terms of uh, new forms of spirituality. Uh, I think there's just uh, I'm very excited about the times ahead. I think we live in a very exciting time. Closing thought, Darius. Where my mind went uh, early on when I was reading the first part of your book, you were talking about machine subjectivity. Uh, machine self-awareness, I wondered how much you were going to speculate about whether we somehow, in our the way we like to think about ourselves a lot of the time, are the be-all and end-all, or whether it might be at some point in the not-too-distant future, uh, depending on developments of technology and AI, that, that we might have had our time, that maybe we aren't the omega of evolution on Earth or in the solar system or the galaxy or anywhere else. My kind of realization as I was writing this book was that we may be having to share the planet with another emerging species, uh, what I call the, the mechan or the mechanoid. This uh, emerging form of consciousness uh, isn't something that we could e we might have easily accept uh, in the same way that it took some time before we could accept that the Earth went 
around the sun rather than vice versa. What we could be going through is another kind of scientific revolution in an age where we cannot imagine another scientific revolution. Uh, we, we've been through Darwin, Newton, the Enlightenment, relativity with Einstein. We're now at a point where we think all the questions have been answered. We have this uh, idea of universal progress, but suddenly, at the moment where you least expect it, uh, our, our own kind of anthropocentrism could again be felled from a, a higher pedestal to a lower one. And we could realize that uh, we are just uh, one of two intelligent species uh, on this planet. Okay, Darius, well, today we've been discussing your book, The Universal Subject of Our Time, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Machine. Uh, that's available everywhere. Uh, readers can find it on Amazon, all the usual outlets. Um, before we go, is there anything you'd like to share with listeners? Um, you mentioned a book that you're working on, a follow-up. Um, have you got website, blog, any, anything at all you'd like to put out there? Yeah, thank you very much for having me on your show, Greg. Yes, the book is called The Universal Subjects of Our Time, and the second book I'm planning is called uh, The Red Pill. Thanks very much for having me on the show.